Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. My next guest is responsible in some ways for enlightening me to the great, to great music. Nothing that involved labels per se, but he's run a record store here in Cambridge, Massachusetts for quite some time. Not sure the exact years. Um, I can tell you that. Yeah, of course, we'll get into that. But uh, Stereo Jack, give me your phone. Tell me your full name. Jack Walker. It's an honor to connect with you, man. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. My pleasure. Jack, can you talk a little bit about what stood out to you, the first great band leader that you saw, and what leadership skills they were exhibiting that, that made that kind of inspired you? Oh, probably Miles Davis or Dizzy Gillespie. Why? Why? Hmm? question kind of answers itself. They were great. They were great musicians, great artists, great band leaders. For... Someone who was born in 78 yeah. at the tail end of, well, Dizzy and Miles. Well, you know, we were both still alive then. Sure. But when you, uh, can you talk about the first time you saw Dizzy or one of the first times you saw him? The kind of band, was he with James Moody at that time? Yes, he did have James Moody. And I had never heard of James Moody. But he played, um, they played a tune called Last Train from Overbrook, which I found out later was one of Moody's big hits. <laughs> but in 66, I did not know this. And he blew, he just totally blew me away. Who else was in the group? Do you remember? Kenny Barron. Chris White and Rudy Collins. R.I.P. Chris White. He just, well, we just lost him. Yes, that's true. That's but going back to them, the subtle things, uh, as opposed to, uh, they were leaders of bands, but, I mean, like Gary Bartz has talked to me about how Miles would hold up a sign saying Al Foster. You know, he wouldn't even announce the guy's names. Uh-huh. Can you talk about some of the unorthodox things that they did that, that are kind of missing in today's live music setting? Oh, boy, I, I don't know how to answer that. And I haven't been to a live music concert in a long time. I haven't either. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know what's missing today. Me. I'm missing. Um, I liked going to clubs. I didn't care for... Go- when it started being in concert halls, I didn't care for it that much. I like going to clubs, having an intimate view of the band, and being relatively close. Of course, when the band plays a concert hall, they make more money, and more power to them for, for doing that. Um, did you see them at... at- at uh, the Jazz Workshop or, or oh, Storyville? Or? Clubs, I, well, Storyville's a little before my time. <laughs> but um, I saw Lenny's, Lenny's, the Jazz Workshop, and Connolly's were the three clubs we went to most often. All gone now, of course. What is your what first memory of... Uh, uh, did you have a radio show here for some time? I did. From 1982 until 2000, I had a radio. I had two different radio shows. Okay, so let's get into that because... I'm fascinated. I, I would say that the it was the tail end of freeform radio in '82. Where you, how much flexibility did no, you have? No, I did a jazz show. It was not. I wasn't interested in freeform. I did a jazz show, and the, both stations, WMBR and later WGBH, um, they let me play what I like as long as I stayed within the format. Tell me about. Tell me what you like. I like classic straight ahead jazz, modern and traditional, and swing. Okay, and uh, so like we just looked at um, philosophy of the spiritual, Bob Moses, yeah. and then you just brought up Dizzy and Miles. Right. Would, would they all find their way into the rotation? Um, so yeah, I suppose. Yeah, played lots of Miles. People like Miles. You know, the night Miles died, I happened to be on the air, so I played five hours of Miles. But I, that, I didn't normally feature somebody. Played a mix, and and you were playing vinyl. Well, into the CD era. I quit in 2000, so obviously I was playing plenty of CDs by that time. Yeah. But in, So like an hour of, of, of the Jack 
the Jack Walker show. Walker. Walker. Rhymes with Joker. Joker. For the Jack Walker show. Um, It was called Jazz Celebrations. Jazz. Beautiful. And the MBR show was called Jazz Celebrations. The GBH show was called the Jazz Gallery. Did you um, uh, find yourself playing tracks longer than five or six minutes? Oh, all the time. All the time. Now, can you talk about. The thing about late night radio, you can play as 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 long as you want. What, what are some of the long form? I just had a buddy of mine put out a CD, and there's one track that's 12 minutes and 13 seconds, and it's like a, it would be in a. I mean, no station wants to run that anymore because of the attention span. But what, what were some of the longer, more exploratory? Well, I liked live. I liked live recording, so I played lots of live stuff, and live tends to be longer because they stretch out. They're not trying to get airplay. You know, that's the whole purpose of short tracks, especially in jazz, is they want them to be played on the radio so they keep them short. Speaking of the jazz scene, yeah, no, of the jazz scene up here, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the guys, Jack Jeffers, uh, um, you know, I don't know if Charlie Mariano was up here at any he point. Was, yeah, he was teaching at Berkeley uh, during many of the years I was a fan and then, and then a radio host. You know. Could you talk to the audience about, I mean, I've interviewed Perla, Mark Levine, uh, Ernie Watts, Dick Burke, I mean, these guys were first generation Berkeley cats. Yes. Berkeley looks a lot different now yeah. than it did then. Can you explain why? Well, I think back then, and most of the people who went were jazz musicians. Now it's mostly rock musicians. You know, that's just our, that's the times. That's just the times. Were there, guys, were, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I guess my question is that you came up really as a fan even before your shows because yeah, oh yeah. before there were any real jazz curriculums that were written per se yes, i mean they right so i mean how do you think that helped the music breathe because the period of time that i'm most focused in on is 65 to 75 right well those are the years i was actively going to clubs here in boston how hot was it very well when you had a choice of three clubs all of them bringing in name talent you know there was there was every week there was somebody worth going to see and i don't want to diminish the value of local bands because there were plenty of good ones back mm-hmm. then but there were name bands coming in from other parts of the country and playing at those clubs and they would play six nights a week and the houses would be full even on the weeknights Wait, now let's just tell me the three clubs specifically lenny's which Lenny's was in peabody in the north shore jazz workshop which was near copley square and conley's which was in roxbury were you very turned off by the move towards electronic music and jazz? Not at, not at the time. What were you what, when it first hit? What were you getting off on? Because some of that stuff is very abstract. Obviously, once it gets into the um, talking about Weather Report or, yeah. or, or, or Mahavishnu or um, you know those when that well, I guess when you would call I hate the word fusion, but that's when well, that, that's what they called it. But I, some people would call the fusion in the late '60s. Really. Well, when did the word first appear? Probably early '70s. I first saw the word fusion probably in Downbeat in '72. Mm-hmm. But the music that that we called it jazz rock, you know, because it was an element. There were elements of rock, mostly the rhythms and the amplified instruments and the improvisation of jazz. And when it first came out, it was very fresh. After a while, it became formalized, and I got tired of it. We are in a pretty formulaic time yeah. now. Um, what do you, in your mind, what what would be a good organic way of getting back to the roots in order to get some more? Exp- exp- I mean, it's not going to happen in the mainstream of. of, of right. there, there's no commerce-based record industry anymore, right? Right, right? So, but what are some what's some advice? Because you you have a great ear, and you dig in, melodic yeah. invention. Yeah. So. What are some of the things you would give young advice you give younger musicians that in order to get back to just being themselves? 
Well, I don't know how to answer that. Probably give up on the idea of trying to make a living playing jazz. Because that's just <laughs> not possible. It, used, it was possible a generation ago or two. It's not sure. now. Most jazz musicians I know, they teach or they have day gigs or, or, you know, or they have other ways of putting food on the table and they play jazz for enjoyment. Well, yeah. you, tell me some of the, the vocalists you got off on, though. I used to hate vocalists. Okay, yeah, so you just I like mean, this... No, I, well, I loved Ella Fitzgerald. I loved <laughs> right. Sarah Vaughan. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked Nancy Wilson. But in recent years, I've come to like a whole lot more that I kind of ignored back then. Like, you know, Carmen McRae and Anita O'Day. and the classic people, you know. But what I wanted to ask you is Tony Williams, Roy Brooks, Mickey Roker, just t- Tony Williams, just to name a few... Cosby talked about you could blindfold him, not show him the liner notes, and put on a record, and he could tell you who was drumming by their individual style. I could do that. Exactly. Most hardcore jazz fans I know can do that. Now, wh- okay, but the question is, why did they all sound different? Because now we're in a homogenization period. Well, because I think they learned, and this is no swipe at music schools, but they learned on the bandstand. You know, Tony Williams was a prodigy. He was, I mean, I remember seeing him with Miles when he was 17, 18 years old. He was six months younger than me, and that meant a lot to me. Seeing <laughs> this young guy, six months sure, younger than sure. me, playing with the best jazz band in the world, and our eyes would be on him the whole time, and eyes and ears. But I think it, I think it has to do with the fact that they played the music night after night after night, and they developed their own, their own set of values, musical values. You know, and it also has to do with what kind of symbols, who's your teacher. I mean, you listen to, you listen to Alan Dawson, you can hear that he, was, he studied with Roy Haynes. You, can, you listen to Tony Williams, you can tell he studied with Alan Dawson. Because there, <laughs> there are little techniques that they display and they're mm-hmm. playing, and it's subtle, but it's there. Uh, like when I <laughs> talked to Lenny White, you know, the, he, when he first moved out to the Bay Area, you know, Woody yeah. Shaw might be out there for a two-week engagement, right? So then all of a sudden, Jack, someone like yourself shows up, you're like, I'm going to bring my friends back the next night. But for someone like myself, it's almost unfathomable to believe that these guys could play six nights in a row on the bandstand. But how do you think, Tell go deeper and, and explain being on the bandstand, how you developed individual sound in a live Just setting. Just from doing it. Just from doing it night after night. I mean, if you're playing, you know, a a 45 or 50 minute set and you're trying to keep certain tempos up, you're going to develop stamina Mm -hmm. and techniques of hitting the cymbal or hitting the snare drum that will be your own because you developed them yourself from doing it night after night after night, not sitting in a classroom being taught how to do it. By somebody who knows more than you. Yeah, I'm not saying that the education is not important, but the individuality comes from doing it hour after hour, night after night. Speaking of going back to the leadership part of it, you you had cats like Miles, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, Dave Holland told me that Coltrane for a while used to come up to Miles and say, what do you want me to do, what do you want me to do? And Miles would turn his back on him saying, and finally it dawned on him, he realized he hired me to do my thing. So didn't it talk about security within the leadership too, to allow those cats to do it? Well, I think Miles was playing music that was open enough that... um, I mean, Miles, from the time he started his first band in the mid-50s, he took criticism from fans and from critics saying, your drummer's too loud or your tenor player plays too many notes. But Miles didn't really care what they said. He liked what they played, and that's that's why he hired them. Art Blakey, I think, is another one. Horace Silver. I mean, Horace Silver's style of music was very rigid, and again, I don't mean that in a bad sense. He had a style that he did, and you, if you joined his band, you played that style of music. Mm-hmm. But within that, you know, you developed... Joe Henderson came out of the um, 
Horace Silver Band, as did Blue Mitchell, you know. And Billy they, Cobham did. Billy Cobham, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's fascinating because yeah, Horace was was doing a new uh, kind of a new accent. I, I don't want to. I'm not a musician, but yeah. he was doing his own b- thing on the blues. Yeah, well, it was blues based, of course. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to a song from my father, and he kind of just plays these repetitive uh, notes over and over again. Yeah. Just, you know. Well, he's got this thing called an ostinato bass, which is a repeated bass that runs bass line that runs through the entire song, more or less, and then you carry that a step further, a record like Bitches Brew, mm-hmm. an ostinato bass goes for the whole 15 minutes, minute tune. Th- see, that's where they started to lose me, because I think bass players should be given some freedom to play something more than a repeated bass line, and that's where I have a problem with the music of the 70s. It gets a little monotonous for me. There's not enough harmonic development. It's more drone-like. You know, and, and there are many people who like that. That was the style, and that's sort of what turned me off. Talking to Jack Walker, yeah. head of Stereo Jack's record shop here in Cambridge. Mm. Um, can you talk about, um, you know, a period in your life where uh, the music fed you and helped you overcome some adversity? You don't have to get into what the adversity was, but specifically uh, an album or even like a, a, a two-week run that really revitalized you at a point in your life? I don't, I don't know that I ever took it personally. I mean, if I heard good music, you'd come out of the club feeling very good and you'd remember it for a few days afterwards. You know, and there are times when you're having financial dis- difficulties mm-hmm. or personal deli- uh, difficulties in your relationships. Good music is, you know, spiritually healthy, you know. Can you can you can you talk to the audience about a, you talked about melodic bass players or uh, can you talk about seeing Mingus? Oh, I saw Mingus many times. Can yeah. you tell, tell a memorable story of, about him. I think of him more as a leader than a bass player, if that makes any sense. Sure. You know, I mean, he was a wonderful bass player, but you went to see the Mingus band. You went to hear what they were going to play. You know, and uh, of course, um, I was a big Mingus fan. Unfortunately, over the decade or so that I saw him perform, I saw him. Uh, um, deteriorate, you know. From the mid '60s, the first time I saw him, it was totally awesome. By the mid '70s, it was disappointing. He seemed to be phoning it in. But I think by that time, he was already probably starting to have some health issues. What was so electric about that early '60s period? From just the fact that he was basically playing the bass as uh, not—I mean, playing within the playing the rhythm section, but he was also playing his own. Well, you know, he played it as a lead. He played lead, lead yeah. bass, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he when when the piano player or the tenor player was soloing, he would provide the rhythmic uh, underpinning that the the musician would need. But then he would take plenty of solos. It was his band, and and he could. But he was a great enough bass player. A problem I have with a lot of bands, and I don't want to name any names, sure. too many bass solos. I don't need a bass solo every two. You know, they get a little bit too democratic. We have the trumpet, the tenor, the piano, the bass, and the drummer on every tune. You know, and bass players will hate me for saying that. I agree. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and we still are in a bastion of, of a lot of young music around here. Have you, can you, have you seen anything, in the la- even in this calendar year, where you can say, well, that was, I walked out invigorated? No, oh, yeah, I can't say that I have other than movies. <laughs> right. So, so even I don't even really go in to live music much anymore, and I hate to say this because I sound like an old curmudgeon, but that's what I am. Most of my musical heroes heroes are not really with us anymore. I mean, Sonny Rollins is still around, but he's pretty old now. Haynes is still around too. You mentioned him. Yeah, I never was a fan. No, yeah, he's abstract. You know, definitely out there. I know he's a very good drummer. Um, well, I don't, I don't want to. It's go okay. Into no, it's fine. Okay. It, um, so. Uh, 
Well, he is still around if he's 90 years old. God bless him. Yeah, we, uh, can you, I, I, I was never a huge fan of his playing. You want to talk about, did, did Ornette move you? Not particularly. Right. I mean, I respect Ornette. I mean, he's, not, he's dead now. Obviously, everybody is, um, is uh, eulogizing him. I have tremendous respect for what he did, but I never felt a lot of passion in his music. It never moved me that much. You know, as contemporary Eric Dolphy, I prefer much more, for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And we lost Dolphy a long time ago, too. Yeah, well, he died young. He died very young, unfortunately. But had he lived, I think he could have been a very important. But he was more of a schooled musician. Ornette was a maverick. That's what people love about him. He's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, did you uh, enjoy the, the, what the, the conga drum brought to the jazz lineup because all the records that I collect for the most part Dizzy too I mean there were albums Dizzy put out where he just had timbales congas bongos I mean, and so the clave beat became infectious and it got off that it, it changed some of the traditional I know you're you claim you know you're straight ahead yeah but um, that that Ray Barreto or the Candido, those guys, you know, what did that do for jazz? Because that also is missing from the lo- a lot of stuff you must have seen with conga drums. Peter not, Rowan talks, you know, not a whole lot, no, not a whole lot. I mean, dizzy certainly, but usually he had a standard instrumentation. I um, I didn't really come to appreciate Latin music until much later, you know, after the so-called golden era. I think you know, and sometimes the conga drum or the hand hand drums. It seemed like they were grafted on there. They didn't really fit. But, you know, there was a time in the 50s when guys like Ray Barreto and Candido, they were working a lot. They showed up on a lot of records, so obviously people liked that sound. It was never my favorite right, sound. Right, right. Um, in terms of, like, uh, it's funny, my ear now is finally adjusting to Herbie before the Headhunters, uh, oh, sex, yeah. Sextant. I just interviewed sextant. Dr. Patrick Leeson. Oh, yeah. He was the only white guy in the band. He's still alive? He's 80 years old and still doing, you know, exactly. No, but but uh, that music can also. You did you get off on some of those tracks? Not too much. Well, at the time, I I checked it all out. See, now in 2015, I'm speaking from a perspective of now. At the time, I was open to all of it. I tried all of it, and then after a while, you decide what you like, and you, and you leave what you don't like. You know, I bought Sextant and I bought Headhunters. You know, but I liked Herbie when he was doing the Blue Note records. Sure. You know, which were maybe perhaps a little more traditional. I don't know if traditional is the right word because those records were really groundbreaking. You know, do you, do you, I mean, not that you're in the school system, yeah. but uh, so you know, you got Freddie Hubbard out of Indianapolis, the oh, Montgomery yeah. Brothers, um, uh, so many cats. Uh, the bands were uh, the, actually learning how to play real instruments. Oh yeah, was yeah. huge, and and now. It seems like a lot of you know African American cats or you know minorities don't have that accessibility to the instruments, so therefore they're they're comping beats, which is why you have right. this. It's not even rap music; it's just not music; it's just rap. You know, yeah. it's, like, it's rhythmic talking. I'm not gonna put it down. No, but 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 but, but what I'm saying is, where, what it, what has happened to the substantive minority improvisational music? Do you feel like that is uh, because the instruments been taken well, out? Well, I think I think, and a lot of jazz musicians have addressed this. And I think it was true even in the 60s when I was going. The audiences were predominantly white. That's who supported the music. It's interesting. You know, I mean, of course, I was going to clubs that were in white neighborhoods. When you went to Conley's, which was in Roxbury, it was, there was a lot of African-American people in the audience. They probably, I don't know, I don't want to get too controversial, they probably were more comfortable in their neighborhood than going downtown or going to a suburb. I understand that perfectly. Did you go to the combat zone? 
Well, the combat zone mostly had strip clubs. And, and it, and it I, no interest. I mean, I'm not saying I never went, but, you know, I, I had little interest in that. That was a different kind of entertainment. But I talked to a couple cats that... Uh, it really provided a livelihood for musicians because they, they would play two sets. It was one set on, one set off, one set on, one set off, and they'd be blowing. Some some stripper would be calling out a tune, like mm-hmm. like Giant Steps or whatever, and they'd be blowing over the top for 20 minutes while she was jo- – I mean, what I'm saying yeah. is it was a – it was a fa- but you never made it – because that was I, more of, a, of a, an area where it was loose. I played in a band in the, in the combat Oh, team let's get that. For several months, but it was an R&B band. We played mostly Wilson Pickett and stuff like that, and we had go-go dancers. This would have been a little bit before there were strippers. They were just go-go dancers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think once the laws opened up a little bit, then they started actually having strippers in those clubs. Did, what instrument did you play? Trombone. And keyboards, but mostly trombone. You were playing bone in a... In a an R&B band, which needed horns. Sure. You know. I mean, what year was this? This would have been 68. Oh, so you were marinating with the Sly Stone and there was a lot... Well, Sly was still new then. It was mostly Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, um, Sam and Dave, that type of stuff is what we were doing. That's fascinating. Sly just came along. He was just starting out then or just just making a name for himself then. How long did you... Um... Oh, not long. Less than a year. I, well, the, like, the thing is, we worked seven nights a week, including matinees on Saturday and Sunday and the pay by today's standards was laughably bad I got it out of my system and stopped doing it right my, my buddy uh, he had to uh, drive a, a cab on top yeah. of doing oh, that I drove a cab for two years after that right and then the, he said there was a oh, we'll take a break so you were how what was your musical upbringing like I mean were you because a lot of the guys would say that because we, we didn't even talk about the YouTube factor you know where you can just turn stuff on and see someone now That's wonderful. you had to learn but yeah, but it, before you really had to memorize and learn just from auto uh, autodidactic you had to learn a lot less uh, but maybe that was a good thing maybe who knows I don't I, who am I to judge how did you learn I learned I st- st- took up the trombone in the fourth grade played in school ensembles you know and all through junior high and high school I was exposed. To music, and then of course, uh, playing big band music, I started investigating it on my own mm-hmm. with the old records that my dad had, and then later taking records out of the library, and then later buying records. You know, I, and you know, it just it grew from there. And then when I went to college, I fell in with some other people who were big jazz fans, and they turned me on to stuff. Who were some of the bone players? Uh, you know, I just I, I was going back through my interviews, and I, the, yeah. this, the McKinney family out of Detroit, and there was a cat, there was a bone. Bernard McKinney, also named Keon Zawadi. He plays euphonium, actually, but it's related to the trombone. Listen, Keon Zawadi's dropping Keon Zawadi. Unbelievable. But no, so from the more... Who are my favorite trombone players? Were you going back to Dixieland days? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so talk about those those bone players. Well, the bone players, the early guys that I really liked were Jack Teagarden, uh, Tommy Dorsey, um, J.C. Higginbottom. Um, The greatest trombone player of all, in my opinion, is Frank Rossellino. I I still worship him today. Why? Because he just... he's. He has phenomenal technique and an incredible sense of humor. You know, he's got the great combination of both. He will surprise you with stuff he plays, and then he'll make you laugh, because what he plays is funny. So imaginative. That's right. You know? That's interesting. So if you went, to, would, talk about the, 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 the dynamics of, of like a Dizzy Gillespie show. Would, would they bring it way? Oh, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you a Dizzy story. It's yeah. not necessarily a happy one. Sorry. We went to see Dizzy the time I mentioned when they did Last Train from Overbrook. That was probably on a Sunday matinee because we were college kids. We didn't have any money. And then we, I said to my friend, 
Dizzy was coming back around again six or eight months later. And I remember saying to my friend, why don't we go two nights? It was so good. Why don't we go two nights instead of one? And we had to scrape together the money to do it. So we went on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and they did a great show, and they, you know, they played their butts off, and they told a lot of really funny jokes. And we thoroughly enjoyed it. We back, went back on Sunday. They did all the same jokes, which taught me something about the fact that it's not all spontaneous. Some of it is an act. You know, well, especially if they and it get, has to be. Yeah. Well, they, and especially if they get if they get the audience going, and then they realize it's a good thing, and they can, you know, if they're well, comedians know if a joke gets a laugh, then you use it again. You know, but does it? You know, it said something to me about the real world as opposed to the abstract world of creativity. You know, nothing is completely improvised. Even you know, great soloists. In, in big bands like Count Basie and Duke Ellington often would play the same solo night after night because they're playing to a different audience. They wouldn't notice. Mm-hmm. Did, did you, um, when you traveled outside of the Boston area, can you talk? did you see a lot of jazz uh, like in New England or in New no, York? I stayed mostly in Boston. I went to New York a few times. You know, I went to Slugs one time, which is kind of a legendary club. Yeah. So, so I could say I was there. Sure. <laughs> and I wasn't there the night anything big happened, but I was there. And I went to the village. I didn't go to the village vanguard until the 80s. And by the time I went there, I was shocked at how small it was. Because I had all these wonderful records that had been recorded there, and I realized that they were recorded in a room about it, smaller than this room, you know, pretty small. But it's still going. Village Vanguard's still going. Absolutely. I mean, the subway still rattles it. Um, yeah. I can't believe that they were able to get the sextet, the, the septet, the Herbie septet back yeah. in 73 with an ARP synthesizer in there. That's I think a, they had some big bands in there. They did. It was new Meister. Absolutely. I mean, I for the last four years, I've interviewed over 400 cats, many of them you know, yeah. and they cover everybody from M. Boom to the West Coast scene yeah. to Jim Keltner, who nobody knows was a jazz... Yeah. Started sn- out as a jazz drummer. Yeah, and I talk to Jim like every week. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, we've become very close friends because yeah. he's fa- he doesn't even remember half... He's playing with Claire Fisher on Pacific on Discovery. He doesn't even remember the session. I'm not okay? surprised to hear that. Yeah. But how much, when you were growing up, were labels used for music... What do you mean labels? Because, well, I mean like, okay, you go in here and, it, well, you go into Tower Records when yeah. Tower Records was there. Jazz, blues, soul, yeah, it, got, right. it got all siphoned off, it got right. all very uh, delineated. But when you were coming up, it seemed to me like it was a lot less emphasis on labels and more of the Duke Ellington motto of it's music, good or bad. Am I right or wrong about Well, that? no, I'm not. I think they, they, if you went into a well-stocked record store, um, like, hello, like the Harvard Coop, they had a jazz section, they had a classical section, they had a rock section, they, they did. had a folk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before you opened this store, what were some of the ancient stores that are no longer here? Well, there was Minuteman in Harvard Square. There was the Harvard Coop. Um, when I first moved to Boston, there was Craze, which is long gone. There was um, Jordan Marsh, which was a department store. It's now called Macy's, but it was called Jordan Marsh back then. They had a huge record department. Leechmere Sales, which is another big department store in, Nor- in East Cambridge. Is that East Cambridge or North Cambridge? East Cambridge. East Cambridge. They had a huge record department. Mm. And going back to the... Can you talk about how the record industry fueled the touring circuit, if at all, that allowed you to see all this stuff live in very intimate venues? I don't know the answer to that. I think record labels probably made a point of seeing to it that when their act was in town, that the record stores had their records. But that was their sales, the salesman's job, to do that. Horace Silver, is co- for example, is coming to, uh, to uh, mm-hmm. such and such a club next mm-hmm. week. 
why don't we make sure we ha- you, you have all his records in stock? That's the type of stuff, and J.J. can take, tell you that, too. That was part of the record business, was seeing to it that when audiences saw an act and liked it, they could go into a store and the records would be there. Exactly. Yeah. And they were coming out with a lot, of, I mean, Miles, though, you could guarantee every few months they'd have a new album coming out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so it was percolating. Did did, did you were you um, reading a lot of uh, of of stuff about uh, when when Train kind of entered the modal phase of his career, well, and people were well, standing up and sa- Jimmy Cobb was in studio in January my, in Tucson because he was there for the first annual Jazz yeah. Fest, and he said there were t- nights. Well, first of all, Miles had Train and and Sonny on the bandstand, and right. Sonny was kicking his butt every night. Uh, so yeah. so Train had to go back to the woodshed, and he came uh-huh, back and. Uh-huh. Was doing this, and people were calling. Well, a lot of white establishment people, a lot of writers were calling it hate music. Did yeah, you? That's stupid. I mean, that's stupid because Train never said that. No musician ever said that. That's what comes from writers, you know, who have an axe to grind. There's no hate music. And Train was called an angry tenor. He was never angry. If you've ever read any interviews with him or seen what he said, mm-hmm. he was a, a sweet and gentle soul. His music was aggressive and, and cacophonous, but I think, I personally think that when he was playing, you know, that last period in his career, in his life, mm. when he was playing that very aggressive cacophonous, shrill music. He was trying, I think, to sort of capture the feeling of the sanctified church. There was nothing angry about it, you know. But they did comment on, you know, when kids, you know, when little, when civil rights workers are killed in, in, in Alabama, you can't help but be moved by that. But the piece he wrote about that, Alabama, right. it's tranquil and beautiful. It's not loud and noisy and angry and rattling the cages, you know. Why, not that you know, but why do you think they had an axe? To, why would they just say that? I mean, because the there were people. Writers? Yeah, because no, because Cobb said that people, uh, women in the audience would stand up and say, "Stop! Please stop playing that music." Well, maybe they just didn't like it. Was a little too aggressive for them. <laughs> it was aggressive, know? and also it was. It's if you're not a musician, sometimes the music got a little overly technical, and they didn't understand it. You know, the, the audiences. You know, if they don't like something, especially certain audiences, we'll we'll let you know. In your the Apollo Theater, how many people have been yanked off the stage because people didn't like what they were doing? Yeah, well, he, even when Train played there, uh, yeah. they cut his show, solo short, but then he'd go off in the dressing room and just keep playing. Well, Train's music was not commercial. You know, let's face it. It's not commercial. It wasn't, but it, he made a plethora of albums for a commercial rate lately. Well, he was selling a lot of records right. because he was getting great... Uh, he was making great music for a long time. His record label... And his management were promoting his name, and I'm not saying he didn't deserve mm-hmm. to be selling a lot of records, but he was taking a lot of chances on record, and sooner or later, I think the sales would have diminished, you know. But he died right at the height of his ascendancy, you know. Did you, did did that have an impact on you? Or did you did at the time it was well, like he died in the summer of '67, and everybody in '67 was pretty much out to lunch, shall we say, and not really paying attention to what was going on in the news. I didn't hear about Train's death until about two weeks later. Because we didn't have the internet back then, and a jazz musician dying didn't really make the nightly news. Or I missed it anyway. You know, until I actually saw it in the pages of Downbeat, I didn't really know it was true. And that was probably two weeks later. Can you talk from your own experience about how you feel the... You're also a blues fan. Oh, sure. Okay. So those cats out of Chicago that were basically unknown, Michael Bloomfield went across, or you actually lived in Butterfield, they lived in those, in, yeah. those, in those neighborhoods, mixed neighborhoods, and then eventually they convinced Bill Graham to get him out to the, to the Fillmore. Yeah, yeah. But in your mind, um, it, it, how, how did those guys eventually get elevated to at least be known? 
Was it because of the British rock guys? What do you, what do you, you mean, see? Muddy and Wolf and people? Well, yeah. Oh, exactly, yeah. Well, because I think the record company sold them to white audiences. I think, you know, Muddy and, and Wolf made these horrendously bad electric albums that took to, to hippies specifically them, yeah. to pander to white, white mm-hmm. rock fans, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of us who heard those records and then, then went back. And when found did you first the get hit the When did you get first hit? When those hippie records, when those big, when they played? Probably, yeah. yeah okay, I mean, so I, it worked. I was more of a, yeah, I know, I was more of a jazz fan, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, through jazz, I'd started listening to some rock, you know, and then, of course, I started hearing people like Butterfield and John Mayall and Mike Bloomfield, but wanting to go back and hear where they came from, you know, so it worked on me, I guess. You it know. did work. Yeah. Talk, can you talk also about the sort of um, the, a diverse... Uh, show that you you might have seen where I mean Graham would put Malo and 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 Big Brother and Miles on the same yeah, ticket. Yeah. Did you did you well, see? Well, that's more. That's a little bit later now. That's more like sixty eight, sixty nine, sure. seventy. Sure. I remember once seeing a bill with Miles Davis, C Train, and Mountain. You know, C-trip. C-trip. Was it sort of a country? Oh, oh, dude, I, I, yeah. Peter Rowan, I, I, yeah. I promoted a concert for that guy. Yeah, well, that, that, that is, is unbelievable. Could that be more diverse? <laughs> You know, that's about as bluegrass. And well, that's the type of bills they were presenting. What bank, where did you see that? This was at Harvard Stadium. But most most of the clubs I went to didn't really have opening acts. That's why, like, you know, I mean, you go to a larger venue, there's going to be opening acts. And I went to, the, there was a place here in Boston called the Boston Tea Party mm-hmm. that, would, that presented a lot of the new rock, the psychedelic groups, and, the, and some blues bands played there, too. And there would be an opening act, and the opening act was usually a local band. Some of them were good, some of them were not so good. Yeah, like when Jackie Byard was at was at uh, at the Berkeley School of Music, yeah. Dawson. Those cats would wind up bringing. Is it true that they would take some of their students and they play gigs at the workshop? Oh well, not necessarily at the workshop. There were local local clubs they played at. Um, Jackie Byard had a band at was it Michael's Pub? One of the clubs in in the Back Bay. He had a Monday night for years, mm-hmm. and most of the guys in the band I think were Berkeley students. Did you ever have a teacher like ja- like Mark Levine talked about? Because Jackie can play drums too. Yeah, he can okay, play so sax. He, he, amazing, sax right? So he's yeah. he's he's like, I want you to play this song in every key, and then Levine would fall apart at a certain point, and he goes, "Now you know what you need to practice. I'll yeah. see you next week." You want to be a musician? You think you know that tune? How many keys can you play it in? <laughs> right. You know that was what was required of musicians, especially general business musicians. You know, you want to play it. You want to accompany a singer. Then you have to immediately transpose the song to that singer's key. Mm. You know that was what a, being a professional musician was, was. I'll throw out some New York, like Orrin Keep news, uh, Norman Grands, a couple of those cats. They, 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 their philosophy a lot of the time was, you know, I, I don't care if this Oscar Peterson record only sells ten records. It's what our label stands for, whether it's Verve, Riverside. Well, Norman you, Grants was rich enough that he could afford to say that, but he the, made plenty of great records. You know. Because um, he managed Ella Fitzgerald, so she paid for a whole lot of other stuff. But, you know, when I come here and I see all this obscure stuff that got yeah. wound up getting pressed, you know, yeah. it speaks to the fact that there was people saying, I don't care if we don't make a million dollars. Yeah. Okay. So there was a, it was the bottom line, but there was also an art form to it. And I wanted to know if there were local labels here. There are there were a lot of good local labels in the New England, Boston area. Can you talk about a couple? Well, the only one that I think really made any impact, of course, I'm probably leaving somebody out, was Transition, which went out of business. I don't know that one. Well, they, had, they, record, they were the first people to record Cecil Taylor. They were the first people to record Sun Ra. 
They also had people like uh, Donald Byrd on the label and Hank Mobley and Doug Watkins. But after about 20 or 25 releases, they went out of business because there was not enough money to be made and he probably didn't have anything in the way of, of distribution. You know, and and um, the records are now worth lots of money because they were only pressed in relatively of small course. quantities. Although all of them have been reissued. You can buy all those records now on other labels. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Can you, just switching over to Stereo Jacks for a minute, um, do, do you, um, have you guys, when you, if you come across some free jazz like, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Wheaton, or not, it's not even a good example, just, you know, some avant garde right. player, the record $600, do you have an eBay store now? Well, not a store. I do sell on eBay. You I, do sell on I, eBay. I auction. I auction. You auction? I love auctions. I'm a big yeah, auction. I don't, I don't do much in the way of an eBay store because I have an actual brick and mortar store. Sure. No, but what I'm saying is you, you're not putting out a $600 record in this store. Absolutely not. Okay. And to the dismay of some people who'd like to find it and flip it. Of course. Like me. You get a lot of that. Yeah, that's me too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but um, uh, talk about the store today. I mean, we're sitting here and there's a stack of, I'm looking at Cosmic Chicken, Jack yeah, Bijanette. Yeah. I saw Bob Moses. These are great yeah. buddies of mine. I just had Michael Shreve, who was Santana's drummer. Oh, yeah, I remember. He yeah. just guest hosted my show and interviewed uh, Dijanette and Garibaldi right. on my show. Right. It's beautiful. But Garibaldi, the Tower of Power. Oh, yeah, David, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, just yeah. had hip replacement surgery, but he's still oh, swinging. Wow. Those guys, you know, you made a good point. You have rock musicians now learning jazz in classrooms, whereas those other cats before were jazz guys who played funk or rock for a living. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting right. stuff. Um, but talk about the inventory. I mean, last time I was in here, I saw all this crazy bluegrass country stuff on King Label that you had. Well, you just made a hit. You know, you, you, but where are you getting the stuff? You comes get, don't in the door. comes in the door. Either we get a phone call and they, they, they say, are you interested in buying records? What do you got? Oh, you have that? We're interested. Bring it down. And so, some collections are just 20, 10 or 20 records. This particular collection was several hundred. Mm-hmm. And this is just the tail end of it that I've been cleaning up, and they'll all get priced and put out tomorrow. I'm excited. Oh, tomorrow, I was hoping they get priced yeah, while I'm here. I don't do the pricing. <laughs> Another guy does. He will be here tomorrow. What is what do you what are you surprised that's uh, not even jazz? Just a, I, I noticed that you know a lot of means rock, a lot of southern yeah. rock stuff. You know, it's in $20, $30 records now. These, but right. what, what do you see, what is surprising you as somebody who's a records, brick and mortar guy? What, what, what's, what's picking up in price these days? Well, what amazes me is that the amount of money people are willing to pay for records that I consider to be really common, like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Right. I mean, these records all sold in the millions, but everybody wants them and so the demand has driven the price up and the record companies are now putting out new pressings of these records for 20 30 35 dollars and people are paying it but these are young people who don't remember when records were three bucks well, but they weren't born well they weren't born yet of course i'm not saying it's their fault mm-hmm. you know and 40 years ago was a long time ago you know but but i'm old enough that i remember sure. it so i'm i'm gonna sit back and watch i'm not going to criticize anybody they want to hear led zeppelin here you go, in some way, and you go to you go to a desert rock town like yeah. Tucson that has these record stores, and and that's what keeps the stores thriving to make yeah. a profit. And then I go in there and I see a Don Covey record for ninety nine cents, and they don't go. even know what's going on. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, what do you think, Jack? Give me some recommendations about uh, some sleeper jazz albums that you you know that you have been listening to for the last four decades that other cats would that you think they'd get off on. Well, I don't know what they would get off on. But what I do you get I off? know yeah. what I like, yeah. and I'm often quite shocked that they don't sell. People like Phil Woods, Jerry Mulligan, Zoot Sims, these guys are my idols. Yet their records always go out for cheap because they're not considered hip. 
there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in you know mainstream straight-ahead jazz. But you put a little funky electric bass on it, and it's twenty dollars. <laughs> you know, that makes me very cynical. No, I know. Yeah. I, you know, I I I I'm so hesitant to go. Yeah. Post click track disco. Yeah, yeah. That seems like it just really muddied up the. Yeah. Yeah. But but uh, uh so. Um, just take us through the lineage. My show is about the four L's: Le- leadership. We didn't talk about love. I don't. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't want necessarily want to go to there with you, but life, adversity, and then lineage. Um, can you talk about the 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 this store? Um, not so much the future, but where you stand right now, and what this store, this the cultural significance of this store in Cambridge. Well, I don't know about cultural significance. I'll, Massive. I'll, I will continue to operate the store as long as I am able. Who knows how much longer that will be, you know. But we've been here for 32 years, 33 years in August, and uh, we're still doing it, you know. As long as there are people who are willing to come in and we can find something to sell them, then we're happy. It was, it was records and tapes for a long time, then it was all CDs, now it's back to records again. That's right. You know, we still sell a lot of CDs, but they're a lot cheaper than they used to be. Been coming to this store since 1998 or so. We opened in '82, so we were already had been around for a while. Thank you know, I've seen the transformations. Jack yeah. Walker, thank you for being part of the program. My pleasure. Thank, thank you right. very thank much. Thank you.